0: Any of you uh, young people, or maybe older people, when you're younger, ever gone treasure hunting? Ever dig around in the dirt and see what you could find? I remember my brother Sam and I doing that kind of thing. Never found anything much worth much of anything. Uh, my granddaughter Zoe and I were looking online, reading about a man that, by the name of Peter Waitley. Back in 1992, this farmer was uh, working out in his field near the little village of uh, Hoxney in Suffolk, England. And he lost his hammer. And uh, the grass was rather high in the field and and he couldn't locate it. And so he, he called up a friend of his, Eric Laws. He knew his friend had recently been given a metal detector as a retirement gift. And so he asked Eric to come over and help him find his hammer in the field. Well, Eric started uh, searching with his metal detector in the area where Peter thought it might be. And started getting a lot of noise on his metal detector. And so he and, and Peter began digging around in the earth. And within a matter of moments, they... They were picking up gold and silver coins, and quite in abundance, and so much so that they stopped what they were doing and went and called the police and the local historical society and had people come out who were professionals to unearth what turned out to be an oak box full of incredible treasures dating from the early 400s A.D., the largest cache of Roman Britain treasures ever found. Uh, Peter and Eric uh, split a finder's fee of uh, 1,750,000 pounds, which I think in today's monetary standards is over $4 million. <laughs> How's you like to find that treasure? treasure like that. Well, Jesus uses a story about a treasure in, in our parable, just as in Roman Britain times, a wealthy family probably buried that treasure for safekeeping. The Roman Empire was coming apart. It was not a safe place, a safe time, and so probably a family uh, had secreted that treasure from any thieves, uh, would be marauders, and never made it back to collect it. Well, people were doing that in Jesus' time as well. You didn't have banks like we do. You didn't have safe places to put it. So often, if you had some wealth, you buried it in a field uh, to keep it safe from anybody that might break in. Well, if a person who did that died and hadn't told anybody where that treasure was, and just like, uh, just like in the case of Peter and Eric, somebody might find it later on. And Jesus uses that concrete example from life in a parable in our text this morning. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Remember, we're in this uh, section of teaching uh, from Matthew, the apostle, and Maybe one of the things I'd, I'd invite you to do is, as I read just a couple of verses for our consideration today, a few verses, ask yourself, why would these be especially meaningful to Matthew? Okay, if you know something about Matthew's background, think about that as we read this. We only have these parables from his gospel. So, uh, gospel. A, a lot of Jesus' teaching is found in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, But these, I believe, are only found here in Matthew's gospel. So ask yourself uh, what personal investment uh, he might have in this. Remember, Jesus is is really sort of at a pivot point in his ministry. This teaching section is prefaced uh, in chapters 11 and 12 with growing rejection of his message, outright hostility, uh, saying that what he's doing is being done in the power of Satan, okay, that the, the animosity of the religious leadership is growing. The crowds have failed largely to respond to Jesus' call for repentance and preparation for the kingdom. They enjoy uh, coming to hear him as a celebrity, maybe benefiting from one of his miracles, but spiritually they're there's been very little response. Just a handful of people have responded to follow him. So it's in that setting of rejection that, that Matthew shows us that Jesus pivots toward more and more using comparisons, literary comparisons like parables, metaphors, and similes when he's teaching. And we've seen already that those have a double purpose. On the one hand, they obscure the truth to those who refuse to believe, to those who have rejected his message. They just hear them as some quaint little stories and go no further than that. But, and this is especially true as we move into our text today, for those who respond in faith, for those like his disciples, who we've seen earlier in this chapter, come to Jesus and say, we explain this to us, we don't understand. Those who come with faith, with confidence that, that there's truth here, they just haven't quite got it. These parables become ways of opening up wonderful truths to them, wonderful words of life that speak to their hearts. And so that's where we're at in, in this uh, teaching, teaching section in chapter 13. There's really two scenes We've looked already at the first scene, which was Jesus speaking many parables to the crowds. And Matthew gives us four of those. Now, we've transitioned in verse, um, I think it was, yes, verse 36. We've transitioned away from the crowds. Now, Jesus is just with his disciples. And Matthew gives us four parables that he tells to the disciples. Uh, some people contend there 's three, but I think I think there's there 's four because i 'm going to read verse uh, fifty two as a parable as well so so we 're going to look at the first two of those parables, so put yourself in the place of the disciples if you can. Okay, think about being matthew or or one of those other disciples, uh, Mary, one of the other women that was following Jesus at this time, and you 're hearing him speak now directly to you, to you, using these parables. So our text is Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The kingdom of heaven, we've noticed, or the kingdom of God, is central to Jesus' teaching. He wants his followers to understand the significance, the meaning, their relationship with the kingdom of heaven. And so he's speaking to them. Why is he speaking to them in parables? You know, why doesn't he just give them direct, direct speech? I, I can't help but think that, that it's so they remember it better. <laughs> we, we tend to remember concrete language much better than abstract language. So even for his disciples, I think he's packaging the truth... In these brief narratives that are very memorable to them. Somebody tells you a little story like that. It's much easier to, to remember than some propositional truth. Not saying there's anything wrong with stating truth propositionally. With uh, statements of theology, systematic theology. But oftentimes a narrative w- will convey the meaning with a with a memorability to it that that aids you in applying it. So, he tells two little stories here, and the disciples there, I think, are already learning how to interpret the parables. Okay, that's another thing that we see happening in chapter 13, isn't it? He's sort of teaching them how to hear these, and so we had that parable the sower, and Jesus then interpreted that for the disciples. We had that parable of the weeds that he told to the crowd, and he's interpreted that to the disciples. And so I think this, this text is sort of leading you to begin to be able to interpret these on your own. Okay, you've, you've sort of got a sense of what to do. You're looking for one main thought. In this case, it seems to be clear that Jesus has paired a couple of them here. So you can assume that the the thought is going to be very similar, if not identical. He did the same thing, remember, with those parables that we looked at, that he said to the crowds earlier. The parable of the leaven and the parable of the birds of the field nesting in the mustard seed plant. Okay, so, so we've got a pair of parables here in our text. What do you think is the main point now? Well, we, we can probably uh, look to that repeated phrase here in these two to get the main point, right? They both both end with someone going and selling everything they've got to gain something which is of great value to them. Okay? So, the kingdom of heaven is of such value that it is worth everything you've got. Surely that must be the point, right? The kingdom of heaven is worth everything you've got. Think about the disciples hearing this, as I mentioned before. Why would Matthew remember this, do you think? Well, he's, he's seen this personally, hasn't he? Remember, Matthew was a tax collector. He's one of the, well, sort of the outcasts, religiously speaking, of the Jews. Pharisees and Sadducees certainly wouldn't want to have anything to do with him. He's, well, any, any red-blooded Jewish patriot wouldn't have anything to do with him because he's collecting taxes for the Romans, for the oppressors. And he hears the preaching of this this carpenter-turned-itinerant missionary. Something clicks in him. He hears that message, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And maybe he's turning it over in his mind as one day Jesus walks by the place where he's collecting taxes and he looks at Matthew and he says, Matthew, follow me. What an astonishing moment that must have been for him. Hey, I wonder if he sort of looked around, wondering if Jesus was talking to somebody else. Jesus is going to pick me? Matthew was so moved by that, that he got up. And left it all. It would appear that he leaves his job. Never to go back. And starts following this man around. Listening to his teaching. Oh, I think he identified with these parables. (laughs) He had found a treasure. In Jesus. And it was worth everything he had. And other disciples as well, you remember. The fishermen left their nets, left their profession. I think Jesus, speaking first to them, we always want to look at what the text is saying to the people who first got it, and then look for an application to ourselves. Isn't Jesus saying to the disciples here, you chose well. You chose wisely in choosing to follow me. You've given everything to become my disciple. That is good. They would indeed give everything, wouldn't they? All of them, perhaps with the exception of John, tradition tells us, gave their life blood. They were executed. They gave their lives, and they thought it was the greatest deal they'd ever made. I mean, that's the image we have here in the kingdom of heaven, right? With this man finding the treasure and this man searching for pearls. Interesting that we have two different modes of coming across the treasure, and maybe that's intentional on Jesus' part to, to sort of, Cause us to reflect. You know how, how do how do you discover this treasure? Maybe it's sort of like the the guy finding it in the field. It's it, it's more or less by accident. Okay, you, you weren't even looking. Like maybe you were doing something totally different. Maybe your life is going a totally different direction, and suddenly, like. Like Saul on the road to Damascus, God arrested you in a vivid way and made you aware there was a treasure to be had. You remember the story of Saul, right? Actually persecuting the church, opposing Christ, and Christ confronts him there on the road to Damascus. And astounds him. And his immediate response is, what do I do? (laughs) Okay. What do I do? He gave it all up. In one of his letters, he talks about that. Talks about his life before. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, okay? I was upper class Jewish religious guy, okay? Okay. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was the top of my class. I had the best education in the world, and indeed we see we see how prominent he was in the fact that he is the designated witness for the stoning of Stephen there in Jerusalem. He, Paul might very well, Saul then, might very well have picked up the manto of Gamaliel, one of the foremost rabbinic teachers, not just then, but ever. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I, I kept all the rules. I had it all. And he says, you know what? I think of it all now like a bunch of garbage. (laughs) All my status, all my accomplishments, all my degrees, all my wealth. I count it all as rubbish in comparison to the treasure of knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Sometimes the kingdom is made apparent to us in that sudden, unexpected way. Sometimes God has already awakened in you a desire, a searching. I read a quote from Richard Hooker, uh, English Puritan, from many years ago. And just to paraphrase it, he, he says, If... All the beauty, all the knowledge, all the honor, all the magnificence of every human being, of all the human race. If, if all that was given to one person, he said that one person would still have a longing within him for something more. Who saying, of course, that you, created in the image of God, have a longing that cannot be satisfied by anything on earth. Now, I know we often think our, our longings can be satisfied here on earth. If I just had enough money. If I just found a treasure like Peter and Eric and had two million dollars. You know? or, or we... Or we think, if only I had that, that particular relationship, ah, that would satisfy me forever. Or if I only had that, that job. Okay. If I had that retirement package. If I, if I had that experience. I saw someone on TV talking about traveling, and they said, you know, it's not who dies with the most riches that wins. And I thought, well, you've got a great lead-in to tell the truth there. But instead, he went on and said, it's the one who dies with the most experiences. (laughs) Visiting the most fancy restaurants, most exotic locations. And I'm thinking, and what good does that do you when you're dead? Maybe you're a searcher like this, this merchant who is captivated by the beauty of pearls. The one gem which is actually made by a living creature. It's really remarkable, isn't it? There's something really beautiful about pearls. And he becomes a connoisseur of pearls, appreciating the beauty. And so he's seeking for the perfect pearl. And maybe you're seeking. Maybe you don't even know exactly what it is you're seeking. But you're seeking for something that will be worth giving your all for. Don't settle for anything less. The world wants you to settle for Less. It's incredible how cheaply people today sell themselves, isn't it? You know, you, you read the news, you you look at you look at the tragedy that that people's lives become, and you think, at what point, at what point did they so devalue themselves? They thought this experience or this possession or this whatever it is in the earthly sense would be worth everything. Don't settle for what this earth alone offers. You are worth more. You're worth more. You're made in the image of God. You're an eternal being. He, he He has He has created you, so you have a beginning, so you're not eternal in the sense that you've always always been, but He has made you an immortal being, you are going to be somewhere forever. And that in itself means that you're worth more than anything in this earth, because this earth won't remain forever. Be that that merchant searching for that perfect pearl. Look for more than this earth can give you. And Jesus promises, if you seek, you will find, right? Because he's the one that really places that longing in you. He's not going to put that seeking in you and then not satisfy it. And, of course, it's satisfied, as Jesus is telling his disciples here, with the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven. What is it that makes the kingdom of heaven so precious that it's worth all you've got? Have you recognized that that's the case? Has your heart been touched like the heart of Matthew and the others to realize, here is one who's worth my following. Here is one who's worth more than anything else in life. That's what he's calling you to here. He's calling you into the kingdom of heaven. That kingdom that knows, knows no earthly limitations. He's really calling you into relationship with himself. In a real sense, we could say that Jesus himself is the treasure. And he desires to give himself to you. You just approach him with repentance and humility. And you will then have it all. (laughs) You have everything. Scripture tells us that in Christ, all the riches of God's wisdom, his knowledge, his power are found. And when you have Christ, you have that do you possess that? Do you, do you, do you appreciate that? You, you need to meditate on this some and, and really understand what a precious thing you've received in Christ as your Savior, as your Lord, as a member of his kingdom. If you really get a handle on that, that will transform how you live now. Just like it transformed the lives of those disciples, their lives went in an entirely different direction because they saw the value of the kingdom, they followed Christ. So your your experience of belonging to Christ, being in relationship with him in in the kingdom of heaven, that will change how you encounter everything in this life. Think about it for a moment the good things in life that God sees fit to give you. And and there are many good things that he will give you, I'm sure. Those good things will be all the better because you're part of the kingdom. Okay? Because those good things you will enjoy not just in themselves but you will enjoy them as gifts from the one who loves you. D- d- doesn't that make the difference for things that you get as gifts? When you get, get it from someone you love? You know, there are things in, in my house that, you know, you'd look at them and you wouldn't think there is much to them. You wouldn't think, and materially they're not of much value, but they're precious because I know who gave them to me. I know where I got them from. So that your blessings in life become all the sweeter when you realize that they are gifts from your king, the one to whose kingdom you belong. And it'll transform the hard things too, won't it? It will enable you to experience suffering differently. Peter and John, preaching the gospel, hauled in before the authorities. And they're told to keep their mouths shut. And they say, sorry, can't do that. We're going to keep preaching. And so they beat them. Probably with whips. And what do we read in Scripture? They went out rejoicing that they could suffer for Christ. (laughs) Or Paul and Silas, having been beaten, they're in stocks, in a dungeon, middle of the night, can't sleep because of the pain. So what do they do? They sing hymns. It will transform your experience of suffering. Johnny Erickson, who I've frequently mentioned to you, I'm sure, young girl, paralyzed from the neck down uh, as a result of a diving accident when she was 16. Has lived now for decades, not only with paralysis, but with, with, with other kinds of problems. She's even had cancer. Her suffering has become a means for her sanctification, she'll tell you. She she realizes now that God has changed her forever in a spiritual sense by that experience of suffering, and that he has used that then to enable her to minister to others. She has an international organization now that that provides wheelchairs and other things for people in, in third-world countries that can't afford that kind of thing. Her suffering has become a means of her sanctification and a means of her blessing others. Paul talks one place about, about comforting others with the comfort that we have received. To really understand the beauty, the worth of the kingdom of heaven and of the Savior that you serve is to have your suffering transformed. It's to look at it differently. You look for the hand of God in it. How is he shaping, how is he drawing me me to himself here? How is he shaping me? How is he growing me? It'll change the good things that you're in. in encounter in life it'll it'll change your apprehension of the suffering in life as well and it will motivate you okay if you really get get a hold of this of what jesus is talking about this this treasure this eternal treasure this what paul calls your inheritance you've got an eternal inheritance that is beyond your imagining. Paul says on one occasion that all all the bad things that have happened to me are like nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory that will be mine. Jesus prayed that for you. If you belong to him the night before he was crucified, he's not praying about himself. He's not praying for courage to face the the enemies that he's going to encounter. He, he's not praying for Stanima to endure the spitting and the beating. and the, he, He's not praying for the, the, the ability to withstand crucifixion. He's praying for you, that you would enter his glory. Isn't that incredible? He's praying that you Would one day enter into his glory. And you've got that waiting for you. Let that motivate you. Let that empower you. To repent of your sin. To resist sin. To to pursue godliness. Because you have glory awaiting you you get a hold of what God has promised for you, that becomes what? It's it's like knowing that you're part of an eternal, everlasting, glorious kingdom, and so you want to live like that. Live up, in other words, to who you are. You've been made a new creature in Christ. Live like that new creature. Put off the old self. Put on Christ. I think all that's wrapped up in this wonderful admonition to us to seek the kingdom of heaven. And remember, remember that that possessing it is guaranteed to you. This isn't a teaser. Okay, God God doesn't hold out this this wonderful promise and then say, well, if you don't quite measure up, I'm going to take that back. He doesn't do that. This is a free gift. We're not to allegorize these parables and begin to think that we've got to buy our way into the kingdom. That's not the point of these parables. Jesus is just using that as an illustration of how much value kingdom has. It's given to you as a free gift. Free to you, but not to God. It cost God to give you this gift. It costs the father sending his son. To bear the rejection of human beings. To see him abused. To see him take on human sin himself and to pour divine wrath upon the one who is the only begotten one. It took that from the father. It took the son humbling himself, becoming human And that would have been enough, but he he humbled himself further. He he became a servant to human beings. He came to serve the human race. And not only that, he he came to be rejected by them. To ultimately take upon himself the penalty for their sins against him. Do you ever think about that? Jesus bore the penalty for Peter denying him. Jesus bore the penalty that would have been on Saul for persecuting his own body, the church. And it cost, we could say it cost the Holy Spirit. Because it took the Holy Spirit breathing life into you when you were dead in sin. And coming to dwell in you as his child. You ever have those days when you think, Holy Spirit, how can you put up with dwelling in me? Okay. It cost God, the triune God, to give you this free gift. He will not take it back. He's paid the cost in full. And so ours is to rejoice, don't you think? Don't you think Matthew and the other disciples would have would have smiled to hear this? And to know that Jesus was was talking about them. They'd gained that kingdom. Have you gained that kingdom? I pray that you have. If you have, if you're one who is living in that kingdom in anticipation, okay, you're living now as a citizen of heaven here on earth, you know, be assured that, that the Lord will get you through everything. He will bring you into glory. He will fulfill every promise he has made to you in Jesus Christ. Just bank on that. Lean on him. Don't lean on your own good works. Don't trust in yourself. Trust in him. And he will do that wonderful work in you. And bring you into his glory. And that gives us something to praise God about, doesn't it? And good news to tell other people. We have the best news there could be to give to any human being. I don't care what a person is searching for out there in life. The may counter. We've got something better than what they're searching for. And so we can boldly testify to the kingdom of heaven and tell people, you need this. <laughs> because I needed it. And I received it as a free gift of God's grace. Let's pray together. And only Father, what a glorious uh, gift You have given to us, and we would be the first to admit that we did not deserve it in the least. We were wrapped up in ourselves. We were consumed by by desires of this earth. We were just oblivious, many of us, and and yet somehow you you awakened in us a desire for you we are so grateful for that thank you lord for thank you for not letting us stay satisfied with the things of earth but to look for something more something greater and help us to appreciate that more fully lord we know we often take it for granted we get caught up and schoolwork and in daily routine and jobs and whatever and and forget what a precious treasure this is. Help us to keep hold of this in our hearts and minds and see every day as an opportunity to live as the people of your kingdom, to demonstrate love, uh, to, to give others the love that you poured into our hearts in Jesus Christ and to testify to you and to And to just enjoy your presence and the blessings that you send our way as gifts from you. In Jesus' name we pray.